This is a Federal News Network podcast. Medicare Advantage was established to make health care delivery more efficient. Nowadays, nearly half of all Medicare recipients are part of a Medicare Advantage plan. Unfortunately, the Medicare Advantage payment model is subject to fraud, no less than the traditional government-to-provider model. My next guest has studied this problem in detail. Molly Nobler, senior counsel at the D.C. law firm DiCello Levitt, joins me now in studio. Ms. Nobler, good to have you with us. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure to be here. And just briefly give us the layman's backgrounder on the difference between Medicare and Medicare Advantage in terms of the payment model. Sure. So under the traditional Medicare model, uh, also known as Medicare Parts A and B, federal beneficiaries, Medicare beneficiaries are covered directly by the government plan. So they choose their doctor, they go to see their doctor, doctor bills a Medicare administrator and receives payment uh, in exchange for their services. Under the Medicare Advantage program, also known as Part C, Medicare beneficiaries choose a Medicare Advantage plan, also known as a Part C plan, that plan receives money from the government, what's known as a a capitated model. So they receive a set amount of money per member per month based on that member's demographics. So their um, certain health conditions they have, their age, uh, income considerations, geographic considerations, but not based on the type or amount of services they provide. And the person that has that plan also pays a premium on their end also. So it's almost like a subsidized type of plan. Yes, absolutely. What's the issue here? I would say there are two issues. The first is that, you know, we've we've seen for decades, right, there's fraud by medical providers, right? Hospitals, uh, drug manufacturers, you know, all, all sorts of providers who are... Uh, incentivized and unfortunately decide to take advantage of the program and, you know, bill for services that they don't provide or that are defective in some way. And that continues to happen with Medicare Advantage as well. Um, And it still costs the government money, even though it's not a direct fee for service. Those costs are taken into consideration when the rates are built for the following year. Because under Medicare Advantage, I mean, you buy the plan from some very big name national carriers that are the agents of this. And then, of course, they have people in their network, doctors, dentists, whatever it might be, surgeons, that they then pay and you pay if there's a copay and all of this. How can there be fraud with that level of scrutiny and in-network types of providers? So it's a good question. And, you know, one of the um, purposes for the Medicare Advantage model is that the government can sort of outsource some of these uh, responsibilities for for looking for fraud and abuse and waste. Um, but unfortunately, what we've seen is that the plans aren't necessarily doing a good job at finding that. And because they are passing their costs along to the government, you know, they don't have as much of a, uh, an incentive to look for it. So the capitated costs then are reflective of the costs of the intermediaries in the Advantage program. And therefore, it's an indirect way that the government is covering the cost of fraud. Is that? That's right. Exactly. And do we know the extent of this? Is there any quantity in terms of dollars? Because, you know, periodically you do hear these Justice Department releases when they've found Mm -hmm. a Medicare or Medicaid fraudster and, you know, they they know how much they built. Right. Is it possible to quantify what's going on in Medicare Advantage? It's a great question. And I think something that we're going to have to uh, come to 
to terms with and really start to deal with as Medicare Advantage becomes a larger portion of the the population. Um, I think to some extent, because it is more complicated and there are these you know additional layers, um, folks haven't looked at it as much. Because over the years, CMS, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, has gotten better at using data analytics and pattern matching and lots of techniques they have to detect fraud or at least know where it might be occurring. But it sounds like it's more difficult for them to do that when the whole thing is offset by a couple of different middle people between them and the actual patient. Yes, absolutely. Uh, And one of the things that we've seen is there's another layer of fraud, right, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the, you know, Medicare Advantage plans themselves committing fraud, right, by making patients appear sicker than they are, not providing services. So this could be unknown to the patient. Oh, I didn't know I had two eyeballs with problems as well as three kidneys when I went in for a sore throat. That's right. That's right. We're speaking with Molly Nobler. She's a, and this is the key point we're going to get to, you're a whistleblower attorney at DiCello and Levitt. And so your model maybe for bringing this type of fraud to light is the whistleblower model? That's right. That's right. As you said, the government has gotten better at looking at data, absolutely. Uh, but in our experience, whistleblowers are really the the ones with the best suited and you know best situated to to see what's really happening. And where might these whistleblowers lie? You have the Aetnas and the Blue Crosses that are the big national carriers that have these offer these plans. And then you have below them the providers. And most providers today are part of large networks. Mm-hmm. It might say Dr. Jones and company, ear, nose, and throat people, but they could be part of a hundred member ear, nose, and throat conglomerate in a distant city that they share billing and medical records with and so forth, consolidated. That's a different level. Absolutely. And then you've got the patient. Right. So where do the whistleblowers most likely lie and who do they report to? Well, they come from everywhere, actually. They come from all of those layers, right? They come from the insurance companies. They come from the providers, the hospitals, the EMR systems, right? The medical records uh, and patients even. You know, if, the, if you see something on your your EOB form and you say, well, I, I didn't get that service or I don't have that, you know, hmm. that condition. And then oftentimes our experience has been that whistleblowers who are part of these companies, they report internally, right? They will generally go to their managers and frequently they are uh, pushed aside, retaliated against. Uh, and that's when they generally find a whistleblower lawyer like me. It sounds like, right. It sounds like the most likely location for the whistleblower would be at the provider level because the big carriers, they're traded, they're public in some cases, and they have large compliance departments and legal staff and all of this, that more of those people than people considering who's sick or not. So am I correct in assuming that most of the discovery would lie at the at the provider level? Not necessarily, especially with these sorts of plan-driven frauds, I would say, where you're talking about, you know, systematic ways of trying to, you know, make patients appear sicker or deny services inappropriately. You know, those are things where plan-level folks are going to be involved and aware of the programs. Right. It's like corporations that used to provide on-the-job life insurance you know, people would say, well, if I drop dead, drag me to the office so we get the payout, that kind of mechanism. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. And also in the latest blog post that you've written, you're noting that the government is aware of this possibility. 
Yes, absolutely. And they've actually been quite aggressive, particularly on this issue about what's called risk adjustment fraud, where so, you know, as we were discussing, um, the plans receive Medicare Advantage plans receive more money if their patients are sicker, which is a, a great policy, right? You don't want plans to be avoiding sick patients who actually need health care. But it's been subject to substantial abuse. Got it. And have you represented any whistleblowers for this particular situation? I have. I have. Um, actually, a couple of them have been have come out from under seal. So these cases are usually filed under seal while the government investigates, often for many years. But I had a, a client who filed suit against a group called Group Health Cooperative and another who filed suit on these issues against Kaiser. Right. And what was the mechanism that they brought to light? Again, these issues about risk adjustment fraud. So basically, you know, mining in patients' medical records to look for diagnoses that weren't necessarily actually there or being treated. Right. It could be that the provider would just add that to everybody's record and suddenly a pattern would emerge. Gee, everybody that comes to this practice has the same problem with their liver. Right, right. Or looking for things that, you know, anyone over the age of 75 has, even though it's not really clinically significant or actually being treated or, um, you know, looking at people's problem lists, things like that, where perhaps it's resolved, but picking that up anyway. And so far as we know, CMS probably doesn't have the mechanisms to go that deep into the system to be able to discover for themselves? No. And in fact, I'm not sure they're even looking at that or even have you know, access to that sort of data because they are, you know, part of what they've outsourced is to the plans to to manage this care and and keep an eye out for for fraud, waste and abuse. All right. Molly Nobler is a whistleblower attorney at Duccello and Levitt. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to her Medicare blog at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics. I um, One of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from, from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of, of people with intellectual disabilities and, and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit. You know, they they basically were in direct care. And and I will say, and on I obviously will say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are are really um, you know we we can't do enough to salute them. 
Um, they're they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom, who comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed, and just keep fighting through all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs and 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 I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that. Uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more. Uh, we get more than we give uh, working with Special Olympics. It, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do. But but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so. Uh, joyful and and uh, I mean we work hard and you know we we're up against you know the things that nonprofits are up against and you know the you know the issues of the day but uh man you see it, it and 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 the inclusion and the at special olympics no one's excluded you know no, right. no one's excluded yeah. everyone is equal at special olympics it, and you know in a country that's quite divided on so many lines politically and uh, socially uh, economically race and uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials, 
Um, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier, um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together. Uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think, when you when you go back to the founding of, of our organization, what Mrs. Tri- Mrs. Shriver was trying to do uh, was to, to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities. And you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together. We still have traditional uh, teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh, teams, all intellectual disabilities. But this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot, I think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh, others with intellectual disabilities. That's just like, I mean, that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that. Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll, uh, Talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.